the New York Times, this is The Run-Up. I'm Mark Leibovich, the chief national correspondent for the New York Times Magazine. Michael Barbaro is finally taking some vacation after his many labors during the campaign. Uh, Today, we're going to devote an entire episode to the transition. We have not done an entire episode devoted to the moving pieces that are whatever is going on in Trump Tower and eventually moving down to Washington. We decided that we would do that today. The aforementioned Trump Tower, just blocks from where we're sitting here in Times Square, President-elect Donald Trump has been hosting a parade of potential cabinet appointees. It's like a beauty contest. We await the bathing suit part of this. They're in the heavily fortified Trump Tower. The daily drama is being punctuated and animated by Mr. Trump's provocative early morning tweets. It does seem to be an early morning thing. He's continuing to attack the media, which has been a... Uh, enduring boogeyman for him through the campaign. Looks like that's going to continue. He's attacked the electoral system, alleged voter fraud, flag burners. Uh, He said some very uncharitable things about Fidel Castro upon the Cuban strongman's death last weekend. And that is sort of the background music to all of this. There is a great deal to discuss, and we're going to do it today. Uh, Joining me from Washington, D.C., are my colleagues in the Washington Bureau Michael Shear and Julie Davis, two of our great White House reporters who have been reporting not only on the Obama White House, but have been day-to-day in the uh, twists and turns of the transition, and will be covering the Trump administration when it becomes an administration after his sworn in on January 20th. Mike, Julie, good to be with you, even though technically I'm usually about five feet away from where you guys are, and now I'm in New York and you're in Washington, but in a manner of speaking, it's good to be with you. Thanks for having us, Mark. Yeah, good to be here. And um, sitting to my right is, in the studio in New York, is Charlie Homans, who I also work with more directly. Charlie is our political editor at the magazine. He is the smartest guy we have up there, at least this side of the person sitting right next to him. And he is a very, very astute political observer with very sharp tentacles to the world. Say hi to everyone, Charlie Homans. Thanks for having me and my tentacles. Uh, Okay, let's start with the biggest cabinet drama yet, and that, of course, means the contest for Secretary of State. We have what seem like three leading contenders, although that seems to change every day. Uh, By all intents and purposes, Mitt Romney is front and center. He is probably the highest profile and most unlikely figure who is being paraded before cameras and restaurants in and out of Trump Tower. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor of New York, Also in the running of this ongoing beauty pageant is David Petraeus, the decorated general who went on to lead the CIA um, and resigned in disgrace over um, telling... What what is the best way of shorthanding this? It was complicated. It involved a mistress, a biographer, and classified information. Can we settle on that? Yeah, he he shared classified information with With a biographer who was his mistress. And it was 2012, not 13. Okay, let's sum up here. 2012, mistress... Classified information biographer. Right. Uh, not necessarily in that order, but he got in trouble. But now he's back. And he is front and center again in this ongoing drama that is the Trump transition. So let's start with Mitt Romney. Because I am so perfectly situated and I get to overhear all of Mike and Julie's phone conversations, I know that they are acutely involved in this. Um, is this a serious candidate? And I guess more to the point, why would Mitt Romney be putting himself through this? First Mike, then Julie. Well, I think he is a serious candidate. Um, I think that's a surprise to a lot of people who remember just how fiercely he condemned Donald Trump during the uh, during the election season, first the primary and then later uh, the general. 
you know, this was a guy who, in Mitt Romney, who called Donald Trump a phony, who just, uh, you know, uh, called him a con man. Uh, we, I guess con man, con phony, man, fraud. fraud, the whole thing. And so it is a bit of a surprise. But people who know Mitt Romney also know that the, the sort of runs deep uh, a, a sense of service, partly because of his Mormon faith, but also just a sense that he... Um, you know, wants to serve the country and that uh, people who know him tell us, I think both Julie and I, that um, were he to be offered the job of of Secretary of State, he would take it and he would gladly take it. And I think um, part of the mystery here is not only that, but is the opposite question, which is why in the world would Donald Trump, who seems to to, uh, fancy people who are really loyal to him and who have sort of stood by him and and kind of share his view of the world, why would he even offer it? And, um, you know, there's a there's a, a fair number of possibilities, including an outreach to a different kind of, uh, you know, part of the Republican Party that he maybe sees uh, Mitt Romney, you know, helping with. Um, but I think the, the crazy, you know, sort of public parading of Mitt Romney back and forth in front of the press um, has left, left us all scratching our head a bit. Well, and I do think that, you know, if you look at uh, the way that Donald Trump is conducting this process and the way he conducted his campaign and sort of the way he likes to see these things play out, one of the things we know that he said privately about Mitt Romney is that he seems like he's just straight out of central casting for Secretary of State, <laughs> which coming from Donald Trump right. is sort of the highest possible praise. I mean, uh, it's like he's casting his cabinet, and Mitt Romney, in his eyes, is a is the perfect guy you want playing the Secretary of State, playing the diplomat. I mean, I do think there is some, a little something to this idea that he wants to be seen as reaching out and to be the bigger person who's willing to turn to a guy who insulted him during the campaign and give him a key post. But we also know that he, you know, privately has really bristled at the fact that he never felt like Mitt Romney really apologized for what he said about him during the campaign. Um, And that's, I think, gave rise in large part to this uh, dinner we saw in Manhattan at Jean Georges, where he sat down with Mitt Romney. They had this meal um, over frog legs and lamb chops and sirloin steaks. And then Mitt Romney came out and just heaped compliments all over Donald Trump and said that he had been so wonderful since the election. He was so impressed with the way Trump is conducting himself. And the, right. the thing that he said that I think really resonates with Trump was he did something I couldn't. He won the general election. And I think, you know, that was sort of a prerequisite for Romney getting this job if he is going to get the offer. Charlie, what, what I would ask, what I'm curious about is, is for Donald Trump the, the public apology or lack of public apology? I mean, is what Mitt Romney is doing, is, does this suffice? Is this a form of Mitt Romney just by putting himself through this, submitting to Donald Trump, which itself is a bit of a form of loyalty and something that Donald Trump himself prizes? I mean, this is the really interesting question, right? I mean, you're kind of seeing a couple of different variables that have been factoring into a lot of Trump's decisions or appear you know, from the outside to be factoring into those decisions um, at play here, which is both the sort of concern with the perception of, you know, you know, what a secretary of state should look like and this sort of concern with personal grievance, which seems to have motivated so much of kind of the, the you know, the choices that he's made in staffing and in, in everything else. I mean, th- throughout the campaign and and you know, as we talked about during the campaign, I mean, it was it's he seems to have even a complicated relationship with the people who have really been very contrite and apologetic to him and and 
it'll be interesting to see how he's sort of weighing these different factors. Right. I mean, in, in addition to people who have been 100% loyal to him, at least by all appearances, whether it's Rudy Giuliani, I mean, is he doing this to torture Rudy Giuliani? Um, I mean, it, there are obviously a lot of X factors here. I mean, I, I guess one subtext of, of the Romney story that I'd love to get your takes on is the Kellyanne Conway piece of this. Uh, she was in the news earlier in the week. She seemed to go a little bit rogue, although um, it seemed like a pretty well-scripted version of rogue, rogue being uh, voicing her own ambivalence about Mitt Romney and how it would be a betrayal to all of Donald Trump's supporters who were so loyal to him. Mike, I, I mean, you I heard actually both of you guys reporting on this, or actually, I think it was mainly Mike. What, what do you make of what Kellyanne Conway was doing? Was she acting on her own? Was she acting on orders from Donald Trump? And is this all some kind of like high-end kabuki that in your own story, Mike, you, you sort of learned by way of um, Donald Trump's spokesman that is sort of part of the big plan all along? Yeah, I mean, I think the the people who try to fit some of this into um, a sort of traditional either-or narrative are probably missing the craziness of it. I don't think this was either Kellyanne Conway completely rogue and going off sort of half-cocked with her own opinions, nor do I think it was a kind of, on the other end of the scale, a kind of sophisticated, well-thought-out plan in which they sort of you know, hatched the plan together and said, go out and do say exactly these words. This was, in some ways, the kind of chaos that Donald Trump thrives on and has always thrived on. And if you talk to people in his orbit, they will tell you that when he hasn't made up his mind, when he's not sure of what he's going to do, the thing that he likes to see is a kind of, you know, sort of mashup of different things going on in the public so that people don't know what he's thinking. And so, you know, she went out there and uh, kind of stirred up the pot a little bit by by um, insisting that the base was sort of furious about Romney. Um, that got all, everybody talking and wondering, well, maybe Romney's out. Is Romney in? Is Atreus in? Is Rudy out? And for him, that's probably okay because you know, as he tweeted at one point, only he knows what's really going on in his head. Right. And I think, you know, it's interesting because this also speaks to some of the competing power centers that are surrounding him right now and that he really has nurtured rather than tried to, to cut down on this discord. You know, we saw at this dinner with Romney, Reince Priebus, who he's chosen as his chief of staff, who uh, I think by all accounts thinks the Romney choice would be a good idea and that, that that would be the kind of person you'd want in a position like that. And who didn't um, we see? And we did not see Kellyanne. And, but, or Steve Bannon. Or Steve two Bannon. people who we think are probably on the other side of that. Right, exactly. And so m much in the same way as, you know, in a reality show, you have like team... Mike and Team Julie or Team so-and-so and Team such-and-such. -such. I mean, in a way, this is the way that Trump is both thinking of this and wants to see it play out in the public until he has a decision to make. And there are obviously a lot of moving parts around that that we don't know. For instance, like what will happen to Rudy Giuliani if he doesn't get the position? I don't think that Trump wants to make a final call on this before he's figured that out. But I, I do think that some of what we're seeing play out is this intrigue that I think is going to drive a lot of what goes on in this administration in the future, just this, these sort of warring factions that are competing for, right. for Trump's ear. Well, let me actually, so I, that actually brings me to kind of a question I'd like to pose to Charlie. It's sort of a rabbinical question, which is a variation that we have been, um, you know, sort of kicking around for many months now. Do you actually think that this is a product of any mad genius from Donald Trump, or is there really no rhyme or reason to it, and the default is chaos, and that's what we see? 
I mean, I'm personally of the you know chaos school of thought on this, but I mean, it's it, one of the the crazy things about this is that just nobody knows. I mean, it's this whole argument over what we should, you know, how we should be thinking of his tweets and and right. basically how we should even be treating them as news or not news. I mean, you see this sort of like to me one of the just fascinating and and often alarming themes of the election and and everything that's followed it is this sort of like sense that. Uh, this question of just what information on the most basic level even means anymore. And, and, you know, you see a ton of that in, in this process. And it's, I don't know, it's fascinating. I've been kind of recreationally going down to going up the Trump tower sort of whenever I have time to just kind of take in the scene. And it's That's very some great recreation. It really is. It's, I mean, it's you can totally wait behind a security barrier. You can, actually, you can go to Starbucks. It's remarkably accessible. Yeah, if you tell it's the, very surreal. Um, and it's even, I mean, it's, it's, to see it actually manifested in three dimensions is very weird and fascinating, but it's essentially the same thing we're seeing in these sort of like random scraps of information that we have no idea what to do with coming out of Trump world. So let me actually sort of move from like a broader conceptual rabbinical question to a, a very, very nakedly bullet pointed sort of John McLaughlin like bullet round question, which is confirmation. It's a very pragmatic question, especially in Washington. Let's think Giuliani, Petraeus, Romney. Do you see any landmines for any of them? Obviously, some would probably be easier confirmed than others. How, how do we see this playing out? Well, I think for for sure, Petraeus would have to contend with a lot of questions about, you know, his resignation and his handling of classified information, particularly after a presidential campaign where Hillary Clinton's handling of classified information became a central theme. So I, I definitely think that that would be a topic. I don't know that it would stop him from getting confirmed, but for sure, um, it would be a question. Now, he has had bipartisan support, so... Um, it's possible that he would be able to get past that. I think Romney is very confirmable. Um, I think probably Rudy Giuliani is too, but he also has some issues with conflicts of interest around his business, um, which has done business with foreign governments and and, uh, advised um, various corporate interests that could end up being landmines in a confirmation process for him. And I think what's probably going to happen in Washington when all is said and done on the confirmation thing is that the Democrats are going to have to pick their shot. You know, they're going to have to, you know, the, the truth is that, that they're in the minority. They, even so, they can probably stop a nomination if they, if they really pull a kind of all hands on deck kind of effort. But, but they're not going to be able to stop multiple ones. And they're not going to want to seem that they're, you know, I mean, there is a presumption that a president has the people, uh, gets the people that he wants. And so they're going to have to pick their shot. Are they going to go after Tom Price on Medicare? Are they going to go after, you know, Rudy if that, if he's the Secretary of State? And I, and, and so it'll depend partly on who they decide to go after. I also think another way of looking that uh, looking at this is that uh, the foreign policy and national security appointments seem like the only place where the Democrats would really have any hope of any traction with anyone on the Republican side. I mean, and in terms of opposing appointments, I mean, this is sort of the only space. You know, if you looked at the look at the sort of most principled kind of rump of the Never Trump movement, it was national security Republicans. The principled rump of the Never Trump movement. This <laughs> is a line can, that yeah. must not be edited from this show. Is this clear <laughs> to everyone in the back office here? The principled. Rump, okay, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's sort of you know those are the people you, you're when you're looking at the Rand Pauls and John McCain's of the party. I mean, who really who you know, had a very principled uh, stand against Trump. And I don't think that, you know, his appointments could kind of go either way on this, but certainly some of them seem like people that they would uh, have problems with. Um, Mike and Julie have obviously been steeped in a much more traditional White House, which is the Obama White House. And it's sort of bizarre that we're not thinking of the Obama White House as the traditional benchmark. But I think by all accounts, uh, it would be seen as more predictable compared to what we have coming next. How 
transferable is this reality show style that we've seen during the transition into the more somewhat uh, traditional realm of a White House communications apparatus, you know, executive branch, so forth. I mean, how how predictive do you see this as being, and and how much of this do you think is just going to be um, subsumed in the the day to day status quo of Washington? Well, I don't want to speak for Mike, but I think that's one of the the big questions in our minds and all in the minds of all of the reporters who are going to cover this White House because. I just don't think we know. I mean, this could very well be transferable to the White House if, for instance, they do away with the daily briefing, they do away with or vastly change the way the presidential uh, press travel pool works, Um, if Donald Trump keeps his Twitter account, which is something that he and his staff have indicated that he will do. I mean, what we're seeing now is kind of both press release by and sort of unpredictable outburst by Twitter, the Twitter Twitter rant um, in the mornings. And I think that if he is, if, if Trump is unwilling to kind of give up this approach that he has had, which really suffused his campaign and is obviously driving his whole transition, he could keep it in the White House. And that would really just fundamentally alter what we do in the way that we cover the presidency. And I think we will have to really rethink how that works. I think the institution of the White House and I think the physical building has a huge impact on its occupants. And I was sitting and talking to Dennis McDonough for a piece I did a few weeks ago about the physical spaces, the physical offices in Washington. We had a piece on the web. And he was indicating the extent to which when you walk into those offices and that have been occupied by decades of people who have confronted all sorts of significant moments in American history, that it's hard to sort of go off and do your own thing without any sort of recognition of the people that have been before you. And I guess I do, I I take what Julie says, I think it's right, we may end up having a president by Twitter, but I also think that it's possible that once they move into that building and once, you know, they start flying around on the plane and the, you know, they're in the East Room, that some of the traditions, some of the kind of things that normally happen that presidents do will start happening. And, you know, it'll never be exactly like Obama. I mean, it, it shouldn't be and it won't be, but I think it may be more normal than people think. Charlie, let, let me ask you this. I mean, do you think that essentially Donald Trump is proceeding so far like he has been given permission by the American electorate to break every rule he sees fit to break? Um, does there come a point where that just sort of hits a ceiling, where that act gets a little tired What's your sense of, you know, what whatever mandate he has would, would abide this? I mean, I think you can kind of overestimate what most voters actually expect out of government. I mean, there's been so many you know decades at this point of kind of diminishing expectations, often encouraged by Republican candidates and often, you know, sometimes Democrats as well, that, that government is, is sort of not really that useful and doesn't really serve that great of a purpose. And I do think that that's had a cumulative effect where I think that that you know, you saw this in some of the poll numbers when, uh, you know, among Trump supporters, like how many of them didn't actually believe he was going to do a lot of the stuff he said he was going to do on, on the campaign trail. And that didn't really seem to necessarily bother them enormously. And I do think that you can kind of overestimate the the expectations. Um, and I think that it's not, you know, we have so little sense of what he even expects out of the job that he clearly, you know, got into this thing not really expecting to have in the end. <laughs> that, right. that it really is sort of, uh, you know, this, this 
This could go the direction that Michael is suggesting, but it could go a totally different direction, I think. So I guess, I mean, to get to sort of turn this into a broader part of the conversation, which is what exactly can Donald Trump get away with in terms of just the hypocrisy bone um, in the middle of all this? If you look at his transition, um, you know, during the election, he talked about Donald about um, Hillary Clinton being bought and paid for by Goldman Sachs, uh, Ted Cruz's wife. And by extension, Ted Cruz was suspect because his wife worked for Goldman Sachs. Now Steve Bannon, a Goldman Sachs alum, and now, by every indication, Steve Mnuchin. Am I pronouncing that right? Mnuchin. Mnuchin. Okay. Now, by every indication, Steve Mnuchin, who comes directly from Goldman Sachs, is going to be nominated as our next Treasury Secretary. You know, this is one of the many sort of strains of potential do one thing, say another during the campaign. If you talk about, you know, not wanting to surround himself with lobbyists or blood-sucking fundraisers or paper-pushing Wall Street people, I mean, all of whom are very, very well represented, or at least the lobbyists were um, early on in the transition. Um, Is there a point where his supporters will say, okay, enough of this, this isn't what we bought in for, and it will um, actually start to hurt him in some ways? I guess possibly, but for somebody who is himself a billionaire, lives in Trump Tower, is running his whole transition out of like a luxury high-rise office tower, um, has had support from a lot of wealthy donors throughout the campaign. What you seem to hear from a lot of his supporters as these cabinet picks have come to light, and you know he's also got Wilbur Ross, a billionaire investor, as his commerce secretary, um, Betsy DeVos, who's a wealthy Republican donor as his education secretary, Elaine Chow as his transportation secretary. I mean, these are people who are wealthy. They have a lot of corporate ties. They're very much like not the drain the swamp crowd you might expect. Um, what you hear from his supporters, though, seems to be, and obviously we'll have to see how it plays out and the kinds of decisions that they make, um, but it seems to be, well, he's a great he's a great leader and he's just putting together a really effective team and both sides do it. And Hillary Clinton had ties to wall street too. And treasury secretaries from administrations past have been from Goldman Sachs and he's just being an effective leader. I mean, I think the proof will really be in what he's able to do or not do. You know, he's made a lot of these sort of one-off deals. He's uh, he said he's made to keep jobs here in the U S um, this thing in, in Indiana with Carrier. Um, there was a case with Ford Motor Company right after the election. Um, if he's able to kind of show some results, even some modest results, I don't really think that he's going to get hit for this. I, I agree with Julie. And, and Mark, here's an example of why I don't think it, any of these appointments are going to matter in that way to his supporters. Uh, do you remember who Obama's first commerce secretary was? I uh, who was? Uh, do, uh, anyone? I have no idea, but that's the kind of the point. Wait, wait, commerce. This is going to bug me now. It was not a Republican. Uh, it was before Penny Pritzker. It was, um... Pritzker. Uh, okay, I think you've made your point. Or actually, we've made your point through our incredibly glaring ignorance. <laughs> I should I should have, like, actually not asked a question I didn't know the oh, answer to. Gary Locke! Gary Locke! Gary Locke! That's right. My point being, I don't think that people who have forgiven Donald Trump for being a billionaire are certainly not going to care that his commerce secretary is a billionaire as well. And I think, um, uh, you know, p- part of his magic all along has been... Uh, to uh, convince people that regardless of what he says or does, that he's on their side. And I think that I think that they're going to be 
with, with a guy like Steve Bannon as his chief strategist, they are going to be laser focused on throughout this four years trying to keep that message alive. That will be the sort of bottom line thing that they will protect. And, and if they're successful at that, then I think all this other stuff is just noise. Um, before we move on to our final lightning round, uh, I want to uh, indulge a pet interest of mine and, and everyone's. Uh, Chris Christie, uh, his ongoing absence from any of these discussions, at least over the last week, um, as people who have been reporting on the transition, have you heard anything about him? Do you think he will play a role going forward? And what happened to this guy? Mike? Look, I, I think Chris Christie is is gone. I mean, I think he is basically gone from this building administration. He, you know, he was probably gone long before the election even happened. There was a sense that by putting him in the transition team that um, they sort of felt like he was out of the way. And then lo and behold, when they won, there he was, and they had to deal with him again. And, you know, it's been well reported, well documented, the dislike between Chris Christie and Jared Kushner, Mr. Trump's son-in-law, uh, for reasons that go back to uh, when Chris Christie, as a U.S. attorney, put uh, Mr. Kushner's father in jail. And so, you know, the fact that that kind of animosity existed made it in an untenable situation. And I think there were some, you know, initial uh, ways in which the administ- or the Trump transition team tried to say, oh, it's, you know, we're going to have Chris Christie come to the Florida Mar-a-Lago resort and, and you know, kind of meet with, with uh, the president-elect and the sort of string of people that came by. But that was never really serious. And I don't think there was ever any real sense that he was going to join the administration or really even be part of the transition. Um, Trump's Victory Tour of America, which uh, kicks off this week. Uh, what is a victory tour? What should we look for in these um, these forays? Uh, Mike? I think the victory tour is largely a, boy, I really want to get out in front of 10,000 people again. I 20 mean, or 30. 20 yeah. or 30. Uh, they seem to be, from what we can tell, the, the first one uh, in Cincinnati, which was one of those places that a huge number of people gathered, I think, in mid-October. There was a huge rally uh, there for Trump during the campaign. And, and I think, I, I honestly, I think he has told people privately that he loved that experience. He fed off that experience. And then after the election, he wanted to continue to do it. And, and I think, you know, we've heard that they want to keep doing it while he's in the White House, which I think I suspect they'll find a way to do. Okay. So in, in the vein of the victory tour, how does this fit into the ongoing reminder that, that in fact, Hillary Clinton um, won the popular vote uh, by at least two million votes, it seems like it's going to be more to what seems like the the great annoyance of Donald Trump. Well, I mean, we we saw Donald Trump very sort of in a fit of pique about this earlier this week with um, his tweets basically alleging that you know millions had voted illegally and he would have won both the electoral college and the popular vote if that hadn't happened. I mean, I think he is very much um, it bothers him the notion that he somehow didn't legitimately win or didn't totally win. And a lot of what he is trying to do through this victory tour, and I think will continue trying to do when he's president, is all about showing how deep and enthusiastic is his well of support. And I think he will keep coming back to that. I mean, in fairness, all presidents do. But um, I do think he's going to feel like he has something to prove because of, if you look at the numbers, I mean, it's, it's a fairly stark gap that's, that's emerged. So it's December almost, and we are still mentioning the words Jill Stein. Uh, I didn't see this coming, and yet she is spearheading these recounts in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. Is this worth doing, or is it a waste of time? Or something in between, because we're reporters. Charlie, what do you think of this? 
I mean, I'm a, a real skeptic of her, whatever it is she's doing now, but I do think I buy the argument that there's no reason to not create a, a, a more sort of robust record of what actually happened. Yeah. Right. Let me sort of sneak a little philosophical question into our lightning round. Philosophical and lightning. Um, there's been a lot of discussion over, again, is, is every little thing that Donald Trump tweets news? What do we make of this? I've heard people say we should ignore it. We should just talk about um, what really is happening, the appointments, uh, the financial entanglements. Or there's the other view, which is that, oh, he's the president-elect. Anything he tweets is fair game. We must write about it and put it on the front page and so forth. I actually tweeted about this this morning. And my, well, there my, you go. And my answer was very simple. We This is no different. We apply the same standards of newsworthiness to his tweets that we do to everything else, period. I mean, it's it's not, if he tweets something that is not newsworthy and that has no value for us to cover, we should ignore it. And if he tweets something that is interesting, telling, revealing what about, about who he false? is, then we should write about it. And I don't think we should, I don't think the idea that their tweets should really come into the into the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree totally with Mike. And I've actually been sort of mystified at the notion that we should somehow ignore what are, by most accounts, completely unrehearsed, unpoll-tested utterances from the mouth of the person who's about to become president of the United States, and certainly once he's in the office. I mean, we don't have to retweet them credulously. We shouldn't. We don't have to report them without any context or without any sort of fact-check element, and we shouldn't. But... Um, I think for the like most them? part, each one of these things is a, a really important window into the way he's thinking, certainly the way he's communicating with, what is it, 16 million of his followers. And I think it sort of contributes to a portrait of him that, frankly, we don't have that many other primary sources to, to fill out, um, given that his the people around him are so unwilling to talk to the press for the most part. It's not like he's having news conferences or interviews, notwithstanding the one he did with the Times. Last week, I mean, there, th those opportunities are few and far between, and this is a constant stream of right from his head um, sort of material that we can use to figure out what he's thinking and doing and trying to communicate. Julie's point about this being sort of a unique window is totally right. I mean, we're on the in the early stages of a really sort of unprecedented experiment. Like we've never had this sort of window on any president before, and I think there are a ton of, of really fascinating possible implications of that that we haven't really sorted out. I mean, what does the sort of steady stream of like kidding, not kidding utterances mean in terms of how we read more formal statements by Trump or by his administration in general? How does the you know the rest of the world, you know, in the event of a, of a you know diplomatic incident, read official proclamations coming from the White House in, in light of the sort of, uh, you know, window that we're looking into all the time? I mean, these are sort of questions that we've never really had to grapple with before. And I think it'll be, you know, very interesting to see to see how this all shakes out. Let me just say one 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 thing on that. I do think that that Trump may find that his words take on a different meaning when he is actually the president. And it could be that um, you know he starts tweeting at the beginning of the administration and things happen as a result. Markets go down or or up or incidents go whatever that and that he and that they, he ends up having to tone it down a little bit just because there is no other voice and no other megaphone like being president of the United States and it could be that that he's not quite he doesn't quite realize the impact that it's going to have. Let, let me wrap this up by actually um, pulling our collective decades of political reporting between us and, and sort of ask the question, what are some key things that we have learned or even been surprised by in these last three weeks of transition land 
that might uh, tell us what kind of presidency the Donald Trump presidency will look like just from watching this. Um, let, let's start with Mike and Julie, just because they are covering the White House and have seen before, current, and hopefully the future. I actually would expect it to continue, at least in the short term, for, for to some degree, is the amount of disarray in this operation that there are so few people around Trump who understand how a transition works, who understand how a government is supposed to work, and they don't really care, and they wear that as sort of a badge of honor, and certainly Trump, I think, thinks of it as a good thing. It'll be fascinating to see how that translates into actual governing. For one thing, it's made this transition a lot more like a sort of public beauty contest than any I I can remember. I mean, the, the notion that they would have confirmed in a conference call with reporters what had become completely apparent to everyone just because it's it's been playing out for for several days now, if not weeks, that there's a contest going on for who's going to get Secretary of State, and there are four finalists, but they won't say, they'll only say who two of them are. I mean, this would have never happened with a prior transition. I mean, there's always speculation, there's always buzz, there's always people trying to report around who's going to get it and who's not, but the idea that you'd have multiple auditions and this this dinner peace offering between Romney and Trump, I mean, this is just an extraordinary level of giving the public a window into the feuding and kind of infighting that's going on here that I don't know if it can continue when he, when he reaches the White House, but that's been, you know, my big takeaway in terms of what's so different in this operation from what we've seen in the past. I agree with Julie, and I sort of hope it continues because it'll be a fun administration to cover if it does. I also think, to go back to your rabbinical question, I think, about sort of uh, the way in which uh, are there any limits on on his, his power, the one thing that I don't think they've grappled with yet is that you know, even though they get to choose the top positions in the administration, there's a whole bureaucracy across this government that stays and that is permanent and that does limit what he can do and how he can do it. There is a whole defense department that is full of people that will that have been there for years. There's a state department with diplomats that are all over the world. And, and I think that what's going to be fascinating to Chronicle is I think he comes in and the people that he seems to be picking think they are going to come in and just change the world in a heartbeat. And it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. And the clash that's inevitable between their intentions and what they want to do and the big bureaucracy that doesn't move very quickly uh, is going to be really interesting to to uh, cover. I also think that, I mean, this was a campaign that from the beginning was organized much more around the principles of political entertainment than politics as we had ever sort of understood it. And I don't think that's a, a turn that you suddenly make just because you won. I think that we're you know, quite possibly on, on the cusp of watching the, you know, the first presidential administration that's, that's really organized around those principles, and we have no idea what that's going to look like. Right. Um, because I'm the guest host, I actually get to add a tiny little lightning round question because it actually was this was triggered by a question someone asked me last night, which is, that, is Donald Trump having fun? Um, I will sort of expand that and ask the three of you very quickly, what, what, how would you characterize Donald Trump's his state of mind through all this? Is it fun? Is it amusement? Is it overwhelmingness? Is it incredible, um, you know, ego fulfillment? I mean, what's your sense of that? Real quick. I mean, it seems from the outside that he's having fun. And I mean, I I think it also seems like a lot of it hasn't really fully settled in yet. But, you know, who knows? Julie? Uh, I think he's having an immense amount of fun. And certainly the ego fulfillment aspect is big right now. Um, He's getting to see 
all of the sort of fruits of his efforts and, you know, he's getting to, to, to sort of parade in front of all of the naysayers who thought he couldn't do this. But I also do think in that first week after the election, we saw quite a bit of sort of deer in headlights, oh my gosh, awe. And I think that's mostly worn off, I think probably just because of the business of the transition and he's having a, a lot of fun now. But there is an, an underlying element of, um, you know, what is this going to be like? Am I prepared to do this? I, I think he's having fun too. Obama famously said that when he got his first deep briefing that tells you all this really secret stuff, that if there hadn't been bars on the window, he would have jumped out because he <laughs> was so shocked by everything. So I, I, I think there's probably some of that, but I agree with Julie. I think it looks like the guy's having fun. The whole world is knocking on his door. I mean, it literally, the calling him literally every from all over the world. There is so much more to discuss, and uh, unfortunately we've run out of time. So all of these many things we have to discuss will, of course, be rendered completely obsolete by the events of the next 10 days or so, uh, so we can look forward to ignoring all the things that we couldn't discuss today. Until then, thank you very much, Mike Shear and Julie Davis from Washington, Charlie Homans with me here in New York. Michael Barbaro will be back one day. Uh, it might be next week. It might be the week after. We're going to keep you in suspense in the spirit of Trumpian drama and reality TV. Uh, otherwise, it's been fun. Uh, thank you, guys. You're awesome. Thanks for having me. Sure, yeah, Bye. it was fun. That was fun. I'm Mark Leibovich. Thanks for tuning in. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.